0: This audio file is part of the Libri Ideas Library and podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family and colleagues, but we ask you to respect the copyright which belongs to Libri Fellowship. Please don't modify this file in any way or publish the material in any format. Also note that the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship.
1: Hi everyone. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm gonna jump right in. Uh, I was telling someone earlier that when I started working on this, I I had like a few pages of, uh, here's what I'm not gonna say. Um, But then I decided, no, that's boring. Um, Let's just dive right in. So I'll give you a tiny bit of what I'm not gonna say, but uh, we'll mostly talk about the topic at hand. Um, The title of the lecture today is, What Does It Mean to Be a Man? The answer to this question has eluded me for a long time. And I'm pleased to say, however, that we will all leave tonight with an answer to the question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, not the answer, uh, not the only answer, not a comprehensive answer, but an answer that I believe to be foundational to everything else that we can say about the question, what does it mean to be a man? Now, to sum this answer that you'll leave with tonight will seem so obvious as to be a letdown, so I apologize in advance. Um, For others, aspects of this answer will feel uncomfortable as it offers a contrast to some widely held notions about sex and gender, so be aware that I intend no offense today and that I'm open to questions and challenge in the discussion time that um, we'll have afterward with one another. I should also say that I'm not setting up myself as the answer to this question. Um, The answer I'm going to offer today is a helpful challenge to me, and something I'm seeking to grow into as I live life as a man, and I hope the answer will be helpful to you too. One more final thing, I will start tonight's lecture with the words of Jim Paul. Uh, The views expressed in the lecture... (laughs) The views expressed in the lecture do not necessarily <laughs> represent the views of Labrie Fellowship.
0: <laughs>
1: so for many, years, for many years, the answer that I'm going to offer today was, uh, it was veiled from my eyes. Once I saw it, I felt liberated. But the veil was drawn before my eyes for, by two cultural forces that are at work in my experience. The first cultural force was veiling the answer was the ecosystem of progressive values in which we live. The idea that men and women are different is increasingly rejected in polite society and there are many reasons for this. A key reason is that there have been tremendous gain for women in society over the past 50 years and once you start talking about the differences between men and women you immediately run the danger of creating a hierarchy that would somehow endanger those differences, sorry, endanger those gains. So what does it mean to be a man under this type of thinking? Well, it's best not to talk about it. And if you are a man, however, just try not to be evil and remember that the future is female. So that's the first answer. Um, the first reason the answer that I'm gonna to give tonight was veiled from me, a progressive culture and cultural environment insisting that men and women are basically identical. But the answer was also veiled from me by the conservative Christian environment that I've lived in and around, and around for most of my life. So if progressive culture downplays the differences between men and women, many evangelical Christian contexts overplay those differences. And the key difference in many of these contexts is one of roles. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Roles. And broadly, the role of a male, um, of men, is to initiate. And the role of women is to respond. And human flourishing then becomes a matter of male authority and female submission to that authority when that authority has shown itself worthy. So what does it mean to be a man? Well, it means playing your role as a masculine male. But the word role does not come from scripture, and it doesn't come from Christian tradition. Anyone know where it comes from? It comes from the theater. When you play a role, you are acting as something other than what you are. So in all of this talk about male roles, I've wanted to know who I actually am as a man. I'm tired of roles. I want to know about reality. So both of these voices, the progressive secular one and the conservative Christian one, kept me from hearing the answer that I hope, for build, that I hope to build for you um, in the next three hours this evening. <laughs> so it, no, it'll probably be around um, uh, 50 minutes at this point. So let's begin. What does it mean to be a man? Before we can speculate about the meaning of manhood, we first have to answer the question, what is, what is a man? So we'll try to do that first before looking at questions of meaning. So first, what is a man? There are two common answers to this question on the street. Um, there are different answers in academia because that's a different world. We can talk about them later if you want. But on the street, the, the first answer to this question, what is a man, is to collapse the answer into stereotypes. So here's one version. Like men. Who are naturally more humble and emotional. Men are assertive and rational. Men enjoy sporting events and power tools, (laughs) expeditions into the wild, action films, and eating copious amounts of meat. Now in certain contexts men who don't enjoy some or all of these things are considered somehow less than a man. It sounds strange, but it's true. You might have experienced this. And when judgments like this are made, it beguiles a belief that these stereotypical actions, <coughs> actions, and attitudes define what a man is, at least in the popular imagination. But there is a second way that the answer the, the, the question is answered on the street, and I ask you to forgive me in advance if this sounds crass. Um, what is a man? Man is the type of person who has a penis. And you find this answer given by both more traditionalist people and by progressive people as well. So to people of a more traditionalist disposition, it's just obvious. (laughs) The penis makes the man, and don't try to convince us otherwise. And we've all heard jokes throughout our lives, well, maybe not all of us, most of us, um, about the size of a guy's manhood. And these jokes can beguile an assumption that sounds laughable, but that can easily capture the male and the female imagination. Mainly, that the bigger the penis, the bigger the man. So that's on the more, you could call it traditionalist side. But on the progressive side, there is now a common assumption that a woman can become a man with a surgery called a phalloplasty. And this is called sexual reassignment. And it assumes that becoming a man is a matter of constructing a penis and adding it on to an otherwise neutral body. So in both cases, the question, what is a man, on the traditionalist side and on the progressive side, is answered by genitalia. And to my mind, this answer is just preoccupied with outward appearance in a way that obscures any helpful definition of what a man actually is. I've been looking for a more satisfying answer to the question what is a man that does not reduce a man to stereotypes or to genitalia. And as a Christian, the Bible has helped me with that answer, particularly the first few pages. So that is where I'm going to go to build a definition this evening of uh, what is a man. So the opening chapters of Genesis are the Bible's first word about humanity. They find endorsement from Jesus in his own teaching in the Gospels in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and so they're an, impo- impo- an important place to start for a Christian understanding of maleness. When you open up the Bible to the first two chapters, we find two creation accounts, one in chapter 1 and another in chapter 2. These are not contradictory. They simply look at the same event from two, with two different lenses one with a wide-angle lens and the other with a zoom lens. So I want us to look at both briefly in turn, um, seeing what they teach us about what a man is. So first, the first chapter of Genesis is the wide-angle view of creation. It is a God's eye view, emphasizing God's transcendence as the Creator who speaks, and it is done. Now before God speaks, the world is without form and void, Because it is without form, on days one through three God forms the heavens and the earth. And because the world is void, on days four to six God fills the heavens and the earth with their host. And you can see these columns match up brilliantly if you make a column of days one and three and days four through six and then you match them together one by one. You see how the forming and the filling happens gradually on each of those days. And if you do this, you'll realize that God forms the earth on day three. God forms the earth on day three. And then on day six, he fills it. And this is where we meet human beings for the first time as part of this harmonious cosmos. These are some tapestries by uh, an artist named Jackie Parkinson that have been making their way around cathedrals in the UK. There are twelve tapestries on the whole creation story. It's called Threads Through Creation. They're very, very large, almost as tall as the screen there and as wide. Um, So they're just kind of overwhelming when you look at them and they're overwhelmingly beautiful too. Um, I encourage you to go look them up. Threads Through Creation by Jackie Parkinson. There's day three, the earth is formed. Day six, the earth is filled. So when it comes to the Bible text, I'm going to use a translation today by one of the world's foremost translators of the Old Testament, a Jewish scholar named Robert Alter. Alter gets some important things right in his translation, and I think that hearing an unfamiliar translation can help those of us for whom a passage like this has become a bit too familiar. So, listen to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, as the narrative builds to the creation of human beings. And God said... Let us make a human in our image by our likeness to hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and the cattle and the wild beasts and all the crawling things that crawl upon the earth. And God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what is a man? We don't have a specific answer yet because here in this wide angle view we see male and female together as the human. And this contributes to our answer though. We find that men and women are creatures made in the image of God, our creator, and this bestows equal dignity on every human person, male and female, but with this equal dignity We also find significant difference. There are two ways of being a human person, two ways to bear the image of God male and female. And so you have the two principles equal dignity and significant difference. And both of these concepts must be held together because this is what the image of God in humanity implies. So the philosopher. Prudence Allen has written three massive volumes called The Concept of Woman. Um, From 750 B.C. up to the present, she traces the concept of woman in philosophy and and theology. I have not read Prudence Allen's uh, 1,768-page project, but I have read a a, a handy 21-page summary um, that she has written of her work. Um, which I can highly commend uh, to everyone. And she begins that summary with a very striking statement. She says, "Every time man-woman relations moved out of balance in Western thought or practice, someone, a philosopher and/or theologian, responding to a deep source of Christian inspiration, sought ways to bring the balance back. What do I mean by out of balance? When one of the two fundamental principles of gender relation, equal dignity and significant difference, is missing from the respective identities of man and woman, the balance of a complementarity disappears into either a polarity or a unisex theory. So what she's saying is that the Genesis vision is one of equal dignity and significant difference that avoids concepts of gender uniformity and polarity. What we have in Genesis is not a vision of uniformity, a unisex vision where men and women are basically the same. No, it's male and female, God created them. We are not collapsed into one undifferentiated creature. But it's also not a picture of polarity, with male and female being contrary or opposite to one another. When this happens, a hierarchy is inevitably created with men on the top and women on the bottom, or vice versa. But we don't find a hint of hierarchy in the first chapter of Genesis. What we do find, held together, is equal dignity and significant difference. And I would argue that it should be the goal of all Christians to rigorously hold these two things together in the face of cultures which will always ask us to choose just one. Choose equal dignity. Choose significant difference. Don't just choose one. We have to choose both. So in Genesis, we don't find the uniformity of male and female, but neither do we find this polarity. We find a duality, which is a complementarity. We find two ways to be human, two ways to bear the image of God in the world, and engage in the great vocation of cultivating the life of the world. Both ways, male and female, are declared good by the Creator. That's what we find in Genesis 1. So what is man? What is a man? So far we see that a man is a human being created in the image of God who bears that image together with woman. And that's what we see from the wide-angle creation account in Genesis 1. When we zoom in in the second chapter, more details emerge. So, the second chapter of Genesis is the zoom lens of creation, and it zooms in primarily on the creation of humanity. What we saw in passing in Genesis 1 is given fuller treatment here, especially when God gets his hands dirty, quote-unquote, in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God fashioned the human humus from the soil and blew into his nostrils the breath of life and the human became a living creature. So from Genesis 1, we concluded that men and women are human beings created in the image of God. But in Genesis 2, we see with greater clarity how the human being is constituted. Here we find that we are creatures of earth and breath matter, and spirit. Our bodies reveal that we are more than our bodies. We are physical beings enlivened by God's breath. But what exactly is God creating here? Is it really a man that we're seeing? A man like me, or Marsh, or Peter? That's what English translations normally make us, usually make us think. They say, then the Lord God formed the man. But Robert Alter's translation captures the Hebrew much better when it says, then the Lord God fashioned the human, humus from the soil. Soil in Hebrew is adama, and the human here is adam, and it's a pun. The creature given life here is simply a human a soil creature made by God. So even as we're using the pronouns he, him, right now, up to this point in Genesis 2, we haven't properly met a man. That will be a different word introduced later in the chapter. We have to wait. The human here represents all humanity. And it is all humanity, we creatures of the soil, who are given responsibility for working and keeping the garden for stewarding the earth, and for faithfully listening to the voice of God. So after this soil creature's creation, we encounter something quite unexpected. We've grown accustomed to hearing, it is good, from God, after the creative acts in Genesis 1. Seven times, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, and onward. But then we would come to Genesis 2, verses 18 to 20. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. And the Lord God fashioned from the soil each beast of the field and each fowl of the heavens and brought each to the human to see what he would call it. And whatever the human called a living creature, that was its name. And the human called names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the heavens and to all the beasts of the field. But for the human... No sustainer beside him was found. Now, here we find the problem of original solitude. The problem of original solitude, as one theologian puts it. It is not good that the human is alone. It is not good that there is just one soil creature. And this is a problem we didn't encounter in the previous chapter. In the wide-angle account, we saw already that there is this duality of male and female in the image of God. But here, we don't see that. We are faced with this problem of original solitude. So God sets out to show this creature the reality of the problem. And that's one of the deep meanings of the strange parade of animals that you get right after the statement that it's not good for a man to be alone. Are any of these creatures the sustainer? No. Not the monkey, not the slug, not the parrot, not even the dog. Going to have to be content to be the Adam's best friend. There are there are amazing revelations for the soil creature here. As one theologian puts it, by naming every other living creature, the human discovers what he is not, but still wonders what he is. He discovers what he is not, but he still wonders what he is, because the human doesn't identify with any of the animals. The soil creature is an animal of a sort, but he's an animal that's capable of language and moral sense. The other animals don't have that. So the soil creature is realizing that he is different from all the other creatures on the earth in that he is a person. He's a person, and they're not. And for the human, no sustainer beside him was found. And so, God does something quite remarkable in verses 21 to 23. And the Lord God cast a deep slumber on the human, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the human said, this one at last Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman, for from man was this one taken. Now these verses are the culmination of creation. They are the crowning glory of both Genesis accounts. But what causes this ecstatic eruption in the man? It is not the reality that they are made in the image of God, their creator, as in Genesis 1. Glorious though that truth is, that's not what he's celebrating. All the creatures paraded before the soil creature in verses 18 to 20, they were bodies, but they were not persons. But here, for the first time, is a body that expresses a person like him. And it means that the problem of original solitude has been overcome. And so, as the soil creature cries out in praise, we as Bible readers make an important discovery. Mainly, this is the first time that the words woman and man are used in the Bible. This is the first time the words woman and man are used in the Bible. They are different words from the soil creature referred to before. They are man and woman. Ish and Isha in the original Hebrew. Man and woman are revealed in this moment, the moment of their meeting. (laughs) Now, the meeting of man and woman provides us with the most important key for answering the question, what is a man? And indeed, what is a woman? But that's not my lecture tonight. (coughs) And the key is this. The body reveals the person. The body reveals the person. This one, at last, the man cries out. What he sees when he looks at her reveals who she is as woman. And no doubt she recognizes it the other way around. So this problem of original solitude is now solved. Here is a person with whom the man can know an original unity. And it is that unity that the man and woman are immediately called to in verse 24. Therefore does a man leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife and they become one flesh. And the fruit of this unity is also voiced in the first creation account in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So to help us draw things together so far, um, I want to introduce you to a book called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favale. I think there's a copy in the library. I'll have a copy up here um, on the table afterward if you'd like to look at it as well. This is the most helpful book that I have read on the topic of gender from a Christian point of view. Favali has a very interesting story. She was raised um, a kind of uh, evangelical Christian uh, with a very strong conception of gender roles and hierarchy. Um, Men initiate, women respond, that kind of thing. Um, And then she was so turned off by that when she got university age that she went and did a gender studies PhD. Um, and became um, an agnostic um, and a bit of an atheist, maybe not fully. But then she recently, within the past uh, 10 or 15 years, entered back uh, into Christianity through the Roman Catholic door. Um, so she is she is a Roman Catholic, and so I would have disagreements with her on a few things that pop up in this book, but not many. Um, it, it is a really wonderful book and she has a breadth of understanding given her experience that helps her write in a very um, in, a, in a very, helpful tone. So I thoroughly recommend it, and I want to quote from two paragraphs that will move us into answering the question, what is a man? So this is Abigail Favale from one of the early chapters of her her book. It is not good for the human to be alone. This lacuna, or empty space, in the created order, is mended not by the formation of more generic human beings or by male bonding, but by sexual differentiation. Sexual difference is a particular kind of difference because it is a difference that is arranged purposefully to correspond to the difference of the other. We are not talking about superficial differences here like hair or eye color. We are talking about a body that is designed to fit another kind of body in an entirely unique way Maleness points toward femaleness and vice versa. Our sexed body signals our inherent capacity and need for interpersonal communion. There are all kinds of differences among human beings. Differences in size, temperament, gifts, complexion. These differences can help create fruitful and vibrant relationships and communities. Only sexual difference, however, is capable of bringing another human being into existence. The one flesh union between man and woman is not exclusive, facing inward and closed off to others. Rather, it is expansive and open because this union alone has the potential to create new life. Communion and procreation. This is the twofold potential that is recognized and celebrated in the Genesis text through the man's cry of wonder. So, this twofold potential for communion and procreation has been deeply illuminating to me. And <coughs> Favale and the thinkers that she is building on have helped me move toward an answer to what is a man. An answer that is rooted in the body. Specifically, this answer is rooted in the key difference between men and women. And not just the outer appearance of that difference, but the telos of that difference, the goal of that difference. So here is the definition that I've come to. Are you ready at long last? Um, What is a man? A man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. A man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. And this places the potential for fatherhood at the center of what it means to be a man. Now let's notice what this definition does not do. It does not reduce a man to cultural stereotypes. This should be obvious, because always and everywhere the male body has had the poten- has been organized around the potential for fatherhood. But it also does not reduce a man to genitalia. It defines a man according to the totalizing structure of the body as a whole. To quote Abigail Favale again, the, not just the penis, but the totalizing structure of the body as a whole. Being a man is more than possessing a penis. It is being a person with a body organized around the potential for fatherhood. And this potentiality that belongs to maleness is always there, even if there's some kind of condition such as age or disease that prevents that potential from being actualized. Men who never become fathers are still fully men, Men who never become fathers are still fully men because of the potentiality for fatherhood around which their body is organized. A man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. Men are potentially fathers. Now the answer to this question is rooted in the body but it's also important that we do not reduce it to the body. Remember, from Genesis 2, that human beings are a unity of body and spirit. Our bodies point beyond themselves to the deep spiritual, that is unseen, reality of our human personhood, reflecting the image of God who breathed life into us. The male potential to transmit new life point a deeper spiritual reality. What can we say about that? Now, it's here where I become a bit nervous about going any further. Um, I'm personally convinced that any attempt to describe this is a matter of speculation um, that can very quickly be adorned with cultural stereotypes to form a description of what every man is and must be. I do not want to make any attempt to strip away the mystery from our sexed embodiment a mystery that will only be fully revealed when we see God face to face. So I'm confident about the definition that I've offered to you about what a man is. I'm also confident that this definition somehow ushers us into the meaning of manhood. But I'm not confident or sufficient at this point in my life. I'm only, I'm only halfway to 70. Um, I'm not confident or sufficient at this point in my life to unveil the deep mystery behind all of this at this point in my understanding. So that's why the rest of this lecture won't be offered with a tone of confidence or certainty. Instead, we're going to enter into some what-if territory to engage in what I hope is some healthy speculation. And I hope that this what-if exercise will give you something to chew on when it comes to this topic, um, whether you are a man. Or a woman. That's what we're going to do. Let's take a quick coughing break. You can do it as much as you want for a little while. More, more, more. Yeah. Black Ford, Black Ford with its lights on, yeah. near the front door. So can you give the number plate again? E
0: K five
1: six. Is it anyone on Zoom? <coughs> no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're entering into the what if, the what if portion of the lecture, um, and let's start. Let's start this way. Um, One of the most helpful commentators currently writing about men is Richard Reeves. He's the author of a book that came out last year called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. And at the moment, Of Boys and Men is widely considered the most up-to-date summary of the condition of men in the West. Reeves has also started the American Institute for Boys and Men, a new organization with a mission to research and raise awareness of the problems of boys and men and to advocate uh, effective solutions. So Reeves is a policy analyst, so his great strength is in marshalling facts and figures. But recently his reflections have taken a more personal turn. Reeves is a father of three. He has great admiration for his own father. And he recently wrote an essay for Comment magazine called What, Are, what Men Are For?, where he contrasts the relational masculinity that he experienced from his own father a <laughs> relational masculinity with what he calls lone ranger masculinity uh, the lone ranger does any does that sound like nonsense to some people yeah so the the lone ranger the lone ranger is a man alone by himself being fully a man yeah. anyway yeah What about tons? Yeah, none. The sustainer is not to be found. Um, So, Lone Ranger masculinity, uh, Reeves writes, is a masculine archetype that is especially salient in America. He writes, but I think it can present itself wherever men are found in the modern world. So, as Reeves describes it, Lone Ranger masculinity is a concept of being a man in which manhood is defined by fierce independence, even to the point of isolation. To discover oneself and step into adulthood, a man has to shake himself loose of social ties. It's Henry David Thoreau in his cabin the frontiersman riding alone, the cowboy out on the range, the astronaut alone in the vastness of space. It's almost every role played by Kevin Costner. (laughs) Except the untouchables. The the untouchables is a great Kevin Costner role. Um, Lone Ranger Masculinity Reeves rests on the assumption that in a state of nature, men would be wild and free. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Yeah? What are, some, what are some examples of this in your mind, apart from the things that, that Reeves mentioned? Where does this resonate with you in your experience of... Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. Okay. Wild and free. Yeah. Hey. Huh? I've attempted to do it myself. You've I I was trying to be masculine. I just thought I was doing my own thing. So you, you, were, you were drawn to it um, just kind of naturally. Yeah. 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 Okay. Batman. Like Batman. Batman yeah. Very yeah, real relationship. Yeah. Bear Grylls, just out in the out in the woods by himself. Yeah. Any other examples? Yeah.
2: I think um, navigating relationships whether these mates or romantically. Yeah. Um, I think I think from a personal level, if you talk to your partner's parents <coughs> and you identify roles, or when you talk about the idea of marriage prep, what are yeah. the roles? Yeah. And I think it made me question nature versus nurture. Okay. The of those, you need to fit by that to support because you're a man. Yeah. Sort
1: of okay. Yeah. yeah. Some some of that going on. Any other examples of like the Lone Ranger mentality? Peter Spink?
0: Throwing a spanner in the
1: works. Uh, maybe <laughs> not right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep that for the Q and A afterward. <laughs> Just asking for examples right now. But yeah, what Reeves is saying, um, hold that one, Peter. We'll we'll come back to it. Um, What Reeves is saying is that somewhere in the cultural cultural imagination is this idea that men are more themselves when they are by themselves. Men are more themselves when they are by themselves. It is a man, Reeves says, who is doing his own thing, going his own way, a man who is his own man. And this isolation can sometimes be envisioned as a positive thing, with the Lone Ranger being a goal that you strive toward. But Reeves' description has also made me think about how many men I've known who are simply checked out of life. Checked out of life. Spending most of their free hours off by themselves, away from their families, away from relational connections, away from everything. And it's made me think of my own capacity to avoid relationship, or my tendency to daydream about how great it would be to be reading a book by myself when I'm supposed to be playing with my children. all the time. Um, <laughs> um, and in my, in my experience, women simply do not check out relationally, like this as much as men do. It's not a, of, of always, but in my experience, I don't see this as much, this complete uh, checking out alone, by myself thing in women as much as men. What Reeves is pointing to is that there is a capacity for otherness in men, a capacity for otherness that can easily lead us to isolation. And this can be a source of great weakness and alienation. But what if this capacity for otherness Can also be a source of great strength and virtue. What if this capacity for otherness is intimately related to who men are as human persons whose bodily structure, the potential for fatherhood, reveals something about the God in whose image we are made? What if? So, what is a father? For a Christian answer to this question, we must begin with God. After all, the New Testament declares to us that God is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And yet, very importantly, God is not male. The Children's Catechism says it best. What is God, anyone? God is spirit. And has not a body like men. (laughs) God is a spirit and has not a body like men. All human beings, male and female, bear God's image and reflect God's image in their maleness and femaleness. But is there a way in which men, in their potential for fatherhood, reflect the image of the father whom every family in, uh, in heaven and on earth is named, in a unique way. That is what many voices in the Christian tradition have suggested. One of the key voices in the 20th century was Pope John Paul II in his landmark Theology of the Body. Another Roman Catholic voice. I'm not Roman Catholic, but I'm learning a lot. In that work, John Paul offers the terms feminine genius and masculine genius to describe the spiritual implications of our biological differences. And these two geniuses, John Paul points out, are not polar opposites. They are two ways of enacting and embodying the love of God in whose image we are made. And so feminine genius, John Paul says, this is a summary, the female body, is designed with an inherent potential to engender new life within. The human person has been entrusted to woman in a uniquely intimate and immediate way. Woman's genius is to be particularly attentive to the human person in whatever her realm of influence. The male body carries the potential to engender life outside of himself. A man must make a willful act to accept and protect a woman and her child. He must choose to cross the distance that lies between himself and the vulnerable other to reach out in love. So what might this masculine genius have to do with God? Think of it like this. God created everything that is and gave life to an entire cosmos outside of himself. God is wholly, completely other from creation. There is, as theologians say, an absolute boundary of being between God and the world he has made. This is God's transcendence above all things. But does the the transcendence of God mean that God is uninterested, unconcerned, or uninvolved with the life of the world? By no means. If we allow the Bible to shape our understanding of God, we find that God is never more himself than when he is going out of himself in love. To quote Kevin Van Hooser, God is never more himself than when he is going out of himself in love. And it is by virtue of being other that God invites created humanity into intimate union with himself. In the God of the Bible, we see an otherness that is not content to remain separate, but that chooses to cross the distance, that chooses to move toward the other in love with the intention of establishing communion and relationship. As the prophet Isaiah once declared chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. Good luck out there on your own. No. Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You Are mine. You, my child, are the one that I will cross the distance to love." What if men, in their potential for fatherhood, have been created to image this aspect of God's being in a unique way? This otherness that must not be content to remain separate but that crosses the distance, moving toward the other in love with the hope of establishing communion. After all, a father is a being who creates and gives life outside of himself. There is a physical distance, a transcendence between himself and his offspring from the beginning. But if we're talking about reflecting the image of God, then this distance and transcendence does not and should not mean that the man is uninterested, unconcerned, or uninvolved in the life of the child. On the contrary, and in the words of a theologian named Peter Holmes, perhaps the father provides an analogous external reference point which draws the child to communion, to step outside of the child's selfish and comfortable surroundings and simultaneously provides an image, example, and proof of God's intimate and personal care for his creation. I'll read that again in a minute. But it's interesting to take that thought and to map it onto some sociological research uh, about fathers. So the American sociologist Bradford Wilcox has written a book called Gender and Parenthood, Biological and Social Scientific Perspectives. He and his authors co- discuss four unique ways that fathers contribute to the lives of their children. So the first one was that fathers play uniquely, especially the type of rough and tumble play that teaches kids how to control their bodies. I never envisioned that I would do this with children, um, just given who I am and how I grew up. One of the things I hated most as a boy was anything rough and tumbly, but I do do this. Um, Fathers foster independence, Wilcox says. Whereas mothers are more likely to offer support and security first, fathers encourage risk-taking and embracing the new. And he quotes this swimming lesson study that found that fathers stood behind their children so that the children face their social environment, whereas the mothers tended to position themselves in front of the children, seeking to establish eye contact. Third, fathers protect against bad influences abundances and predators. Not that mothers don't, but he quotes statistics like the reality that teenage girls are more likely to avoid a teen pregnancy when they have an engaged father. And fourth, fathers discipline distinctly. They are more likely to hold their children to a clear standard, to be sticklers for family rules, and to take an authoritative posture with their children. Now, listen to that quote again from the theologian that I read to you just before um, these stats. What if, what if perhaps the father provides an analogous external reference point which draws the child to communion and draws the child to step outside of the child's selfish and comfortable surroundings and simultaneously provides an image, example, and proof of God's intimate and personal care for His creation. Holmes continues, If we can propose this kind of imaging, It would not suppose emotional or or physical distance from the child or the mother. It would instead engage a father in the same level of knowledge of the pain of his family, his ear keenly attuned to their cry in need, and his determination and effort in fulfilling the covenant he made with his bride at the wedding altar. So the otherness of men can and often does lead to selfish or despairing isolation to the lone ranger or to the lone consumer. But can you see how the otherness of men might indicate a unique capacity for moving toward the other in love with the hope of establishing communion? A capacity and even a calling to cross that distance between self and other. And this is, this is, of course, not just a male calling, but a female calling, too. We are all selves in a world of others, and the calling of humanity within a Christian view of reality is to move toward the other with self-giving love. But what if men feel the distance between self and other more keenly than women? What if that felt distance which can so easily lead us to check out is actually meant to propel us toward the other rather than away. And what if men have been created to image what it looks like to cross the distance between self and other in a way that reveals to other men, to women, and to children something of the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, the relationship between a man, his wife, and their children is the clearest example of this, and it's the sphere in which the majority of men throughout history have realized this possible meaning of their masculinity. But it is by no means the only place. If the potential for fatherhood points beyond itself to a deeper spiritual reality, then we are talking about a relational insight that suffuses all of life, and not just biological fatherhood. So the question then for every man becomes, what do we as men do with the felt distance from others that we feel? What do we as men do with the felt distance from others that we feel? And the answer is that we do what God does. We elect an object of love, Choosing a focus for our loving attention. This might be a spouse, but it also might be a community, our church, our friends, our workmates. And we elect and choose that this specific person or persons will be our object of love. And then we cross the distance. We then seek the good of that object of love. And we hope that the object of love will flourish and that it will come to share in the love that we've offered them. Now, the world puts up many barriers to this for men. Our own sin and selfishness as men provide even more barriers. And in the process of this, we might be hurt and hurt others. We need to be ready to say we're sorry even back away when the love that that we've sought to show is not reciprocated or desired. We have all known men whose way of crossing the distance between self and other has been invasive in a uniquely painful way and not at all mindful of the other's good or their consent. But none of this means that the calling to cross that distance has been rescinded. It does not mean that the Lone Ranger is the meaning of our masculinity. Despite all disappointments, we are still made in the image of God. And if that is true, we are never more ourselves as men than when we are going out of ourselves in love, seeking the good others. I want to draw us to a conclusion with some more words from the theologian Peter, Peter Holmes, um, whose PhD on masculinity has been quite helpful to me. This is what he says. And there's a Van Gogh painting to put beside it. <laughs> a man who looks for the good in others, wonders at its goodness And seeks to address any lack therein finds fulfillment in giving of himself to selflessly serve another's good. This is not limited to a general sense of justice and being generally committed to respecting the rights and goods of others. A man's limitations, his finite nature, mean that attempting to make himself a gift to all would be impossible. One person attempting a total gift of self to all people, even if limited to all people he was capable of interacting with in his short life, would result in a general and limited kind of intimacy. What if in masculinity at its best we find a love that is attracted to a specific good, a specific situation? And which arouses a desire in him to see the good free from evil and to see good flourishing in itself, not for his own gratification, but out of commitment to seeing its goodness flourish in its own right and for its own end. This seeking aspect of love is a proper and good element of true love. The specificity of God's love is not a generic benevolence, but a love that actively seeks out its object and passionately engages with specific persons and with the smallest part of His creation. There seems to be an obvious application of this aspect of masculine desire, this joyful wonder that eagerly seeks to know, guard, and enhance the beauty it finds which might be applied to all areas of a man's life. His desire can extend to particular goods in the world, and often does, not just his fatherly concern, but his specific and focused desire for that particular good to flourish. A man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. What if a man's body potential for fatherhood <coughs> reveals a deeper spiritual capacity and calling to cross the distance between self and other in order to establish communion? These are speculations hopefully healthy ones, you might not buy them at all. Um, But I hope they will lead us into deeper reflections about the meaning of maleness and the possibilities for masculinity in our time. And if you are a man, let's strive together to not be lone rangers, but to cross the distance between ourselves and others, and to seek the good of the other. Because I think it might be what we were made for. That's it. Um, so what if you take a few minutes um, to talk about what we've just heard with your neighbor. Cough as much as you like in the midst of that too. Um, and then uh, and then we'll come back for a we'll come back for a little discussion and QA. Now you've
3: kinda off some steam with your neighbour. <laughs> uh, let, let's um, let's uh, gather together for questions. I will. Um, I'll choose some hands, and uh, or I'll choose one hand at a time, and then and then Philip will answer. But I, I was going to ask you, Philip, if you could say a little bit more about how you think we kind of historically have come to the point where it's such a struggle for us mm-hmm. to, you know. Th- Yeah, the point where um, people really are questioning what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman, am I really a man, I feel like in the past that probably wouldn't have been on people's radar and I guess I'm interested to know what you think, I don't know, to sort of flesh out a little bit more the voices and the kind of currents that have brought us to that. I guess the
1: first thing that I think of uh, about the uh, uh, one aspect of your question is that we are right now very alienated from the materiality of our bodies. Um, so much of the work that we do is is disembodied yeah. via via a screen or working remotely. Um, we work less with our hands, and therefore we are aware of our bodies less. And so I think that makes it very um, difficult, or counterintuitive, to think of men and women with a definition that is rooted in the body. And so what I was trying to do tonight was establish a definition that was rooted in the body but doesn't reduce it to the body. But I think we are, um, I think it's Alistair McIntyre who said that uh, modern people are forgetful of the body. And I think it's our forgetfulness of the body that can lead us to thinking that or that, that men, male and female, man and woman, are, are defined in terms of either cultural stereotypes mm-hmm. or personal feeling mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. um, because of the alienation we have from, the, the, uh, from what is material. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as men um, in, in particular, there's an interesting observation that Richard Reeves make, makes in his book. Um, this shows up in of boys and men and I just want to read it because I think it is, is, is really helpful. Um, He says that uh, it is a fact, this is Richard Reeves, it is a fact of human history that mature masculinity is more socially constructed than femininity. The idea of a crisis of femininity is hard to imagine since the process of bearing, giving birth to, and feeding children is a strong component of feminine identity that is hard to disrupt. The role Mm -hmm. of men in reproduction is obviously less and so the rights of passage to mature masculinity are less grounded in biology than in culture. And then he quotes an anthropologist, Margaret Mead, who writes, and this is, this is quite a stark quotation, but she says that every known human society rests firmly on the learned, nurturing behavior of men. This behavior being learned is fragile and can disappear rather easily under social conditions that no longer teach it effectively and so I, I wonder if she says that mature masculinity has always been more socially constructed than femininity, you might challenge that thought, but I think because we're always talking about a crisis in masculinity um, there's something to that yeah. and that in every generation it is the duty of, uh, of men and women to figure out a way to help men, well help boys become men in a way and figure out some some maybe rite of passage mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that that teaches them um, what their what their masculinity means mm-hmm. um, so that, w- that would be an answer um, mm-hmm. from both my perspective on the bodily thing then from Richard Reeves perspective on the idea of uh, why we're often talking about a crisis in masculinity more um, than a crisis in femininity. Do you
3: think that society becoming more individualistic is part of that because you know if, if if we have a more communal culture or if we have a larger kind of view of what we're for mm. and what we're doing perhaps is more natural perhaps that supports the development of masculinity more than just a sort of isolated does that make sense like if we're working yeah. in a forum or working in a community perhaps it's i, I wonder if
1: i think so yeah, it, we have this. We have this book for our girls called Oxcart Man. Does anyone know Oxcart Man? Picture book. It's a it's a poem by the American poet Donald Hall, but that was then turned into this beautiful picture book by a, a woman named Barbara Cooney, I think. Anyway, the the pictures are just beautiful, and it's of a, a pre-industrial revolution American farm family. And it shows them doing all of this work together on the farm. And you read it, and it just fills you with longing for a time when we, when we worked together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we, we sweat and our back de- backs ached and there wouldn't be running water mm-hmm. or anything like that. Yeah. So we don't want to go back to all that stuff. But there was,
0: the
1: <laughs> <laughs> but there was this vision of, of working together toward a common thing yeah. um, that is, is really, really beautiful. And that, doesn't, um, th- that provides a picture that's much different from the individualistic one that we have. Mm-hmm. I, I think evangelism doesn't help. And that it, the idea that I think of life primarily first about me doing my own thing, mm-hmm. men and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I don't think of myself as potentially um, a father. Mm-hmm. Not meaning that I will have biological children. Mm-hmm but that my being mm-hmm. um, relates me to other people mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a very alien idea to us because mm-hmm. we're thinking of, of, of ourselves mm-hmm. first and foremost. Mm-hmm.
3: Thank you. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Um, we... Questions from the floor. Josh, you were first. Um,
1: hey. In the beginning, you mentioned the definition of manhood um, as one who initiates. I'm just wondering
2: exactly
1: what your reason was for considering that a stereotypical or unhelpful yeah. view. Yeah. So yeah, at the beginning, at uh, the, the uh, at the beginning, I mentioned the definition of man as one who initiates um, as being unhelpful, and you're asking why I thought that to be right, so yeah, thought elaborate. that to be so. Yeah, I I was putting it together. I think with the conception that uh, men are the ones who initiate and women are the ones who respond. And there, there are two problems that I see with that. The one is that, uh, as Marty Kays, who worked at, works at South Barilla Brie, has taught me over many years, uh, if you tried to spend one day just initiating or just responding, uh, you would, you would, it would be a horrible day. Um, and both men and women initiate and respond. So there's that, that's one problem I see, is that to say that one does more than the other It it seems problematic to me. But the second one is that it says that the male role is to initiate and the woman is to respond. I think that puts that puts the woman in a a very secondary and um, potentially even demeaned position because it insists that she is there to respond to a man and it leaves her without agency in a way that I think reduces her humanity in an unhelpful way. So it's not a, it's not so much that I see men initiating as the problem, because men do need to initiate in many ways, as do women. It's just defining primarily maleness and femaleness according to initiation and response that I see as, as problematic and, and quite difficult. Um, so, yeah. That that was that was my my key reason for that. Oh, okay. Cool.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyone else?
2: Any mm-hmm. um, two things. I think you, you touched in an interesting because you said like, what is a man? What does it mean to be a man? Yeah. Um, I always think of it as like male and man are two different things. Mm. I think that I have a lot of friends, we have a lot of debates on this. You know the when you would identify what makes me a man, yeah, and what makes me a male, yeah, two different types of questions, mm. and I so I think it's interesting you touched on it, it mm. more leads me to a question to mm. ask you where you sit with that, yeah. But also I think it's interesting we're talking about like what the characteristics of a man are, and what God has as a father, mm. but then when you showed the what met, like what a man and a woman might, yeah. Have, Yeah. That God has them. Yes, that's I totally agree. Meet there, mm-hmm. Which is really interesting why we still use the term father kind
1: yeah.
2: as well. Because then I guess ki it kind of sums up what you were saying earlier about it being an image of the human body rather than maybe it's a human construct yeah. of man and woman
1: rather yeah. than human body. Yeah. What I'm drawn to in incre- Yeah, yeah. So I think to, to talk about um, maleness versus being a man, I think that tends to, to flirt maybe a bit too much with the distinction between sex and gender that has kind of captured the cultural imagination. Um, so sex, maleness, femaleness, but gender, man or woman, and you might be a gender that is different from your sex. Um, you're not saying that. Uh, I didn't hear you saying that at all. But I think that idea that you can split up uh, m- m- male from man um, is um, its an idea that I'm increasingly uncomfortable with because I, I want to say that if, y- if you are a person whose bodily structure <laughs> is organized uh, according to the potential for fatherhood, You are a man, and everything you do is masculine because you are a man. Just as every human person is created in the image of God. So there are things that you can do that reflect that image less, you know. But that doesn't change the reality that you are an image bearer. Just as, perhaps, as a man, you can do things that reflect the image, re- reflect your maleness less. Um, but you never cease being a man. And everything you do is done out of that, out that maleness. Um, so that's, that's where I, I am increasingly more comfortable with going. Um, but both men and women, in their uniqueness, are reflecting the image of the same God. Just in, two, just in two different ways. Does that does that um, address your question at all?
2: So, just because I want to make sure... Yeah, yeah. That, so, are you saying, so the, the concept that because, for example, whatever I do, if I identified as a woman, mm. let's say, yeah. um, it would be none because whatever I would do, I'd still have inevitably... Inside parts of me that would make me whatever I do still a man of quality, but we need to redefine what man means
1: i i I'm wanting to define what a man is according to the like uh, the totalizing structure of the body okay. um, as what one person I quoted says, and so I might not put it in those stark of terms that you just did, but i I, I would agree with that statement Interesting. yeah. yeah. Any, any other questions? Yeah, can I uh,
4: take the uh, definition up at the top? Yeah. What is a man? Yeah. I'm, I'm just struggling because surely that would just apply to a woman as well, the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new
1: life. It so uh,
4: applies equally to a man
1: and a woman. No, um, a, a woman's body is, uh, there's one word that would change there. That would, that would be, you would change, transmit to gestate. Um, because the trans, the, I would say the transmission of life, is what, is what a ma- a man is doing, <laughs> and the gestation of life is is what a, uh, the, the female body. I guess I'm thinking of a different type of transmission.
4: We're talking
2: about
1: sperm and. At its most basic level, yes, but but yeah, I'm I'm looking for. Two two different words there, and so, yes, I'm thinking of a particular type of transmission there.
4: All right, and if we go back to men and women, why can't we go back to the genotype Uh and look at the XY and the XX chromosomes? Yeah. That's a big, significant difference in my book. Yes. But you never mentioned that.
1: I didn't because I'm not a scientist, but I will say that there's a a temptation. Oh, sorry. Um, why can't we go back to chromosomes um, in this sense as a defining characteristic? Yeah. So in the discussion about um, male and female, there, culturally, there is often a tendency to reduce, to, to reduce maleness and femaleness to um, genitals or chromosomes. I am looking for something that relates to, as I said earlier, the totalizing structure of the body as a whole. And I don't want to privilege chromosomes and outer outer appearance in that definition. So what I want to look at on the complete uh, spectrum, I guess not spectrum, the, in the complete picture, is yes, genitalia, but also gonads, um, ovaries, testes, internal structures that produce sex cells and hormones. So I would want to look at all of those things in a totalizing framework, rather, Total body. yeah. Every single
4: cell in that body is X, That It is isn't just a gonads. It's <coughs> every single cell you look at has the
1: differentiation. Yes. Of yes, and I think the reason I want to do the totalizing view, though, um, is because of certain situations where um, uh, in intersex conditions or something like that. Um, there's a tendency to say if someone's... Um, d- Gen- uh, genital appearance does ma- does not match their chromosomes or something like that, that uh, they're on a spectrum between <coughs> male and female or something like that. Um, and so I want to do the totalizing view rather than just one aspect of it, even though the chromosomes are important. Yeah, okay. yeah Jim. Uh,
5: thanks for a fascinating lecture. But, um, and I was really interested in so, towards the end, when you were talking about um, uh, that men find fulfillment reaching out to the good of others, and then you said towards a particular good. Hmm. I was interested, and did you, you have in mind, I wondered if you had in mind there not not necessarily like the good of being a father <coughs> of a child, but did you have other goods as well that they could reach out to?
1: I think I, I'm. I think if,
5: Things in art and culture, something yeah. that you can be the father of, if you like, in some ways. I don't know if you had that in mind.
1: Yes, yeah, I certainly didn't mean the 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 particular good. Just be uh, yes. Did I in in talking about particular goods at the end? Do I mean a particular good um, beyond um, fatherhood and that kind of and being being a father? And the answer would be yes. Um, I think that's what that quote that I read at the end was really trying to get to, um, about the, the male desire, perhaps, for to see a specific good to flourish, and I think that could be any that could be any specific good that you move from uh, that you move from the isolation of otherness to, and, and cross the distance toward. Um, yeah, it, it, it could be thinking, particularly in relational terms, um, in this lecture. And toward the good of other human persons, um, whom you can give yourself to as a gift—not in a sexual, not necessarily in a sexual way—might include that in a marital in a marital situation. Um, but there, there are any number of specific goods that I think this capacity to cross the distance and seek the good in love uh, could reach for. So. Yeah, I I would definitely want to broaden it, um, for toward any number of things. So that, that might be
5: if someone the potentiality of, instead of having being a father,
1: was
5: yeah, an actuality, there's still a kind of. So we think, a, if you like, a, an outworking of there. Uh, yes. Then being a
1: man. Yeah,
4: yeah. In that
1: way. I mean, it's it's interesting. So a lot of the help that I'm receiving and in coming into a greater understanding of these things comes from writers in the Catholic tradition, and that tradition has a lot of space for celibate people who are committed to vocations. Um, I mean, all the the quotes from John Paul II are written by a guy who was celibate, Um, and it's so interesting that in that sense, uh, that in those vocations, they're called father and mother. they're not biological fathers and they're not biological, biological mothers, but they see in their devotion to that community and vocation the outworking of the spiritual fatherhood and motherhood that is inherent in every male or female person. And I think that's something that I've wondered about ever since I was you know, think, thinking about um, the topic of celibacy and singleness here. Is that how how do we provide spaces for the outworking um, of that other-centered love for people who are not married, and for people who will not marry, or who are who or who are now single after a, a after a spouse has died or something like that? It's a really it's a really important question. So yeah, thanks. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting that um, most of the authors yeah um, based their observations on the Western world. Uh. and looking at the lifestyle of modernity yeah. coming into Africa, yes. most big African cities are now being to experience that. Mm. Um in that it's not more the men who are changing so much, it's more the women who are now taking on roles and yeah
1: yes yeah the w- western um, william comes from africa and you see the, the western way of life moving into into the african context yeah. In, yeah. in in large ways yeah. um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. So sometimes people think when they, hear, when they hear this kind of stuff, like the talk about the feminine genius and the masculine genius, they think, oh, all these, all, all these writers who talk about motherhood and fatherhood are basically just saying that you need to stay home and have lots of kids um, or something like that. And it was very fascinating to me to read in um, those essays by Bruno Prude- oh. Allen um, who did the big, you, you know, t- uh, history and philosophy of concept of woman, um, she, she was quoting John Paul II, Pope, uh, who was talking about women going out into the, into the workforce, and he was very positive about that. And he was very positive about it because he said, with more women out in the workplace, there will be, or there should be, a humanizing effect on the workplace. Very interesting, because he saw, because of the structure of the body, that the human person was specifically entrusted to woman, and that there's a specific attention to the human person that seems to be the genius of women, um, and so he was hoping that there would be a humanizing effect on the workplace when women would go when, when women would go out there, which is very interesting. I don't know if it's happened, because I think the the uh, the negative aspects of some forms of masculinity in the workplace are so strong. Um, So I would hope that, yeah, there would be a humanizing effect, Um, but I think the the workplace has been taken over by certain dynamics that are just very, very, um, one might call toxic. Um, So, yeah, it's interesting to see those patterns working out in different cultures and how those cultures change.
5: Just going on that culture thing. Yeah. You, when you were studying, did um, different cultures, like for instance in Russia, they referred to it as the motherland and yeah. the Dubai the fatherland. And I wondered whether you've got any comment on
1: that. I have absolutely no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> if were I to comment, I would just be making it up. So sorry. <laughs> if anyone else has comments on it, that. would <coughs>
4: one of the stereotypes that come up is that the man should provide for the family. Mm. And I was arguing from your lecture, you don't actually advocate for that at all. You you, you just don't comment on it. The, your categories don't. That doesn't emerge from your categories. Mm. So I was wondering, what is the... Uh, can you give us some concrete... And maybe maybe asking for concrete things is is unhelpful. But in a, in a marriage, how does the man cross the distance like what what
1: what do you what do you mean by that? Hmm. Um, well, you were talking you were talking in your example in marriage. How does man cross the distance? Does that necessarily mean providing for a family um, or something or something like that? I think our idea of the man goes out from the house to work all day, <clears throat> five days a week or more and then comes back at night to a household that is um, basically run by his wife and where their children are cared for and all that. You could call it the ideal of the nuclear family that arose in the 20th century after the Industrial Revolution. I think that is increasingly untenable for a lot of people and that it's, it's not at all helpful in many ways. Maybe it worked for a certain period and in certain economic conditions. Uh, but right now, it, it really it doesn't work well anymore given the economic conditions we're in, especially in the West, where to both, um, both husband and wife end up needing to work in order to make ends meet in many ways. So I think we're in a place where we have to navigate what it means to work together in, a, in, in marriage, in a unique way, and that might even take us back, move us back into a period where the household as a single unit of people working together might be more of a thing. Um, It could lead to just the mutual alienation of people doing their own work and um, just drifting away from each other, but I wonder if it means that it becomes more possible to work toward a common goal together. I mean, I... um, I I see a lot of fathers now and husbands who who do work from home and who are able to be at home more often and are therefore able to be more involved in the life of their children. And I remember, I think it was during COVID when working from home was becoming more of a thing, um, that a, a friend of mine in Tennessee, after experiencing two months of working from home and being there to be around his children during the day, said, I don't know what I was ever thinking trying to seek a job that would take me out of this place. I, I just treasure this time with them so much. So I wonder if there's a, if the, if there's a, a, a realization there um, that many people might have, that this thing where one person goes out of the house all day um, and then comes back at night might not be the ideal. <coughs> I guess the second thing I would say about uh, about marriage... We're told in Ephesians 5 that the, the husband is to love the wife as, as Christ loved the church. And there is, there is a certain sense in which that means that he is, he is the first to love, and he is the first to, to sacrifice, and he is the first to lay down his life. And I think that that firstness does not indicate a hierarchy in the relationship like he is any greater than she is. But there is, following the example of Christ, um, a, a firstness to his actions of love that is very important to the relationship. That does not mean that men have primacy. It's particular to that relationship in mirroring a specific type of love of Christ for his bride, and that part of the, the man's submission to God means that he will be the first to sacrifice and the first to love and cross the distance for his family. Um, so that's, that's, the way, that's the way I see it. Marriage is a very specific relationship in which that, in which that firstness, I think, uh, takes, a, takes a particular um, angle.
4: that a point sort of further it, the, uh, the the New Testament principle is that the, the wife obeys the, the husband on the basis that the man loves his wife mm. in other words sets that example yes and you were you were so sort of slightly beginning sort of, you talked about this traditional way that you thought of things mm. and sort of slightly saying that has changed but it seems to me that in the particularly as a said in this country, is that men increasingly have ab- applicated that role of the mm. lives because of consequences of having affairs and mm. and not being reliable, then that sense of obeying the husband is mm. diminished because that love is not there. Yeah. Is there I, I would anything around that, that because one of the things that concerns me increasingly mm. is that the men, generally speaking, increasingly, not all, obviously, but increasingly have abdicated that role, and women have, th- have felt that they have to fill in, because that's not there.
1: So uh, the concern about men abdicating their responsibility, and especially advocating the love that they are called to, the Christ-like love that they are called to in marriage... <coughs> that being your specific concern. Yeah, I I think that it's it's very important in any any thinking about that passage in in Ephesians 5. Again, this is not a lecture about marriage. I was speaking about men in in, in general, but it inevitably goes there. The heading of all that is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the banner of that whole passage is a mutual submission to one another um, out of reverence for Jesus. Um, and then it talks about husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. And I do think that the, the, the wives' submission to the, to the husband, whatever that means, is on the condition and basis that he is loving her as Christ loved the church. And if he is not doing that, then he is not worthy of her submission. Um, and that is a very serious thing. Um, so that that's how I would I would see that I would see that passage working itself out. However, you understand what <laughs> submission means in that in that in that passage. So. <coughs> Back of the room, Roman, I'm going to forget you. Um, so
3: uh, about the the Genesis passage, and yeah. the translation and interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of takes out the like the the sense of that, you know, soil creature. Yeah. Yeah. A sleep of non being and then yeah. when the female is created, there's also kind of a, a male is also created somehow. Mm. So that's an interpretation of that to have heard. I just am curious to know what your thoughts or maybe or and or the thoughts of the translator that you're assigning as well would be on that
1: interpretation. Yeah, I, I I find that a very interesting interpretation. I don't know if I can go with it completely, mainly because the, of the, the pronouns that are used. It, they just, it does talk about him when it refers to the soil creature. So that, that's an aspect that is significant to me. But I also think that the text is encouraging us to think of the soil creature there not yet as, not yet as a man. Because the only, the only time that word... Well, no, the first time the, those words man and woman are used comes in their discovery of one another when both of them are there. So I think that's a significant literary point that the author is trying to make. So, yeah, I don't know what I know about the undifferentiated creature sleep of non-being stuff, but I do think that the emphasis of the text itself is trying to get you to see that this creature before another creature exists is something quite different from what exists when there are two of them. And it's really trying to emphasize that because it's using completely different words. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by that interpretation. I don't think I can go with it for a variety of reasons, but I think the emphasis on seeing the difference between the creature before and the creature after the creation of another uh, human being is significant. So, yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, I was also talking about the Genesis
1: account. You talked about that meeting as the first time. I think you said two characteristics. Is the, the sexual the equal dignity. Equal dignity. Uh, so that was back in Genesis 1 before um, you see the, the creation of the two of them, the longer view. So the, the text says, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So because they are created in the image of God, that bestows equal dignity. And because they are male and female, that shows significant difference. And those being the two um, the two things that both need to be held together in order to grasp a full picture of what it means to be made in the image of God. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's what I was trying to emphasize. But did you have a question regarding that?
3: Yes. Yeah, so after, that's the, the first part of Genesis, and then a couple chapters later when the, the fall mm. occurred, In the difference between man and woman, hmm. when he God said the man is going to labor the earth and in work, yeah. The woman is going to labor in childbirth, yeah. And I believe that that is the instance in which woman was placed under submission of man. Hmm. Does that uh, provide provide anything into the
1: definition? So that there's there's a debate over the text in Genesis three. About whether the fall introduces submission of men to women. Um, sorry, <laughs> submission of women to men. It's it's late, um, and you mentioned the curse on the man uh, it being that he will he will toil, and that the, the woman in childbearing. Um, but the main the main verse that's u- usually used to ground that idea. Um, is when the Lord says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And the the textual date is whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. Is the fact that the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over you and he will rule over your desire and that being necessary and good, is that what's going on? Or are we talking about effects of the fall here in that women will be afflicted in some ways by an over-desire for men and men will be similarly afflicted and infected with a dominance over women and that that will lead to the corruption of the relationship between the sexes in a in, in a really damaging way. I see it as the second way around. Um, you could go into the, into the grammar, something that I'm not sufficient to do. I see it as the second way around, and that the, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, <coughs> those being the description of two fallen tendencies in male and female to, both, to, de, uh, to over-desire and to dominate, um, which are, I think, the, <laughs> you could say are the roots of what you could call toxic masculinity and toxic femininity in some ways the over the over dominance of the male and the over the over desire of of the woman. That's the way I see that text. Not as not as creating a hierarchy that is good, but as showing two fallen tendencies that are both negative and that need to be redeemed by Christ. So I
3: think we need to okay spanner.
1: Let's finish with... The, is this the spanner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Peter, yeah? Oh, you said no. you had... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, yeah.
0: I didn't have a question. I'm going to ask a different question.
1: Though. Okay. Different.
0: You were saying that a man should obviously love his wife and family, Well, um, that goes without saying, really, especially in Christian
1: circles. Needs to be said, though.
0: But in times of war...
1: Yeah. ...and
0: a man has to go away to war, he yeah. might have to make the ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Where well, is he going to leave this family then? I mean, it doesn't so much apply these days because of social security and benefits and the rest of it. But up to a 100 years ago or so, it would have been a very difficult decision. Or it would have left them in a very, very awkward place.
1: So in, t- in times of war yes. in the past, a man had, I'm repeating your, your idea, uh, in times of war in the past, a man would have to make a very difficult decision about the, the, the fate of his family well, when, I mean, he, when, he to, when he goes off to war.
0: When he goes off to war, you see sometimes pictures of them going off to war quite cheerfully all going to beat the Hun and all the rest of it, Yeah. but um, of course the reality was somewhat
1: different. Yes no I, I I guess I would it, yeah and that's and very much a tragedy, and i suppose and i suppose i I would want to say that that is a, a a tragic circumstance in which hard choices need to be made in which no one really benefits from, and sometimes life gets us there i, I yeah, I don't really know else i I, I recognize the tragedy of it and don't really know what else to say about it. So. I
0: mean half all the way all the way through the bibliable.
1: Yes, yeah, it's stressful. Yeah, it's the, it's the sad, sad reality, sad reality of war.
3: I think we should finish.
1: Okay. Just
3: so that you don't expire up there. you <laughs> so much for your thoughts. So much
1: beauty in in your lecture. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, thank you